Chapter One of New Treasure Seekers The Road to Rome or The City Stowaway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leo Green. New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbitt. Chapter 1 We Bastables have only two uncles, and neither of them are our own natural-born relatives. One is a great-uncle, and the other is the uncle from his birth of Albert, who used to live next door to us, in the Lewisham Road. When we first got to know him, it was over some baked potatoes, and it's quite another story. We called him Albert Next Door's Uncle, and then Albert's Uncle for short. But Albert's uncle and my father joined in taking a jolly house in the country, called the Moat House, and we stayed there for our summer holidays. And it was there, through an accident to a pilgrim with peas in his shoes, that's another story too, that we found Albert's uncle's long-lost love, and as she was very old indeed, twenty-six next birthday, and he was ever so much older in the veil of years, he had to get married almost directly, and it was fixed for about Christmas times. And when our holidays came, the whole six of us went down to the moat house with father and Albert's uncle. We never had a Christmas in the country before. It was simply ripping, and the long-lost love, her name was Miss Ashley, but we were allowed to call her Aunt Margaret, even before the wedding made it really legal for us to do so. She and her jolly soldier man brother used to come over, and sometimes we went to the Cedars, where they live, and we had games and charades and hide-and-seek and devil in the dark, which is a game girls pretend to like, and very few do really, and crackers and a Christmas tree for the village children, and everything you can jolly well think of. And all the time, whenever we went to the Cedars, there were all sorts of silly fuss going on about the beastly wedding Boxes coming from London with hats and jackets in, and wedding presents, all glassy and silvery, or else brooches and chains, and clothes sent down from London to choose from. I can't think how a lady can want so many petticoats and boots and things just because she's going to be married. No man would think of getting twenty-four shirts and twenty-four waistcoats and so on, just to be married in. It's because they're going to Rome, I think, Alice said when we talked it over before the fire in the kitchen the day Mrs. Pettigrew went to see her aunt, and we were allowed to make toffee. You see, in Rome you can only buy Roman clothes, and I think they're all stupid bright colours. At least I know the sashes are. You steer now, Oswald. My face is all burnt black. Oswald took the spoon though it was really not his turn by three. But he is one whose nature is so that he cannot make a fuss about little things, and he knows he can make toffee. Lucky hounds, H.O. said, to be going to Rome. I wish I was. Hounds isn't polite, H.O., dear, Dora said, and H.O. said, well, lucky barges, then. It's the dream of my life to go to Rome, Noel said. Noel is our poet brother. 
Just think of what the man says in the Roman road. I wish they'd take me. They won't, Dicky said. It costs an most awful lot. I heard father saying so only yesterday. It would only be the fair, Noel answered. And I'd go third, or even in a cattle truck, or a luggage van. And when I got there, I could easily earn my own living. I'd make ballads and sing them in the streets. The Italians would give me lyres. That's the Italian kind of shilling. They spell it with an I. It shows how poetical they are out there. They're calling it that. But you couldn't make Italian poetry, H.O. said, staring at Noel with his mouth open. Oh, I don't know so much about that, Noel said. I could jolly soon learn anyway. And just to begin with, I do it in English. There are sure to be some people who would understand. And even if they didn't, don't you think their warm southern hearts would be touched to see a pale foreign figure singing plaintive ballads in an unknown tongue? I do. Oh, they'd chuck along the liars fast enough. They're not hard and cold like North people. Why, everyone here is a brewer or a baker or a bunker or a butcher or something dull. Over there, they're all bandits or vineyarders or play the guitar or something. And they crush the red grapes and dance and laugh in the sun. You know jolly well they do. This stuff is about done, said Oswald suddenly. H.O., shut your silly mouth and get a cup full of cold water. And then, what with dropping a little of the toffee into the water to see if it was ready, and pouring some on a plate that wasn't buttered, and not being able to get it off again when it was cold without breaking the plate, and the warm row there was about its being one of the best dinner service ones, the wild romances of Noel's poetical intellect went out of her heads altogether, and it was not till later and went deep in the waters of affliction that they were brought back to us. Next day, H.O. said to Dora, I want to speak to you all by yourself and me. So they went into the secret staircase that creaks and hasn't been secret now for countless years, and after that Dora did some white sewing she wouldn't let us look at, and H.O. helped her. It's another wedding present, you may depend, Dicky said, a busy surprise, I shouldn't wonder. And no more was said. The rest of us were busy skating on the moat, for it was now freezing hard. Dora never did care for skating. She says it hurts her feet. And now Christmas and Boxing Day passed like a radiating dream, and it was the wedding day. We all had to go to the bride's mother's house before the wedding, so as to go to church with the wedding party. The girls had always wanted to be somebody's bridesmaids, and now they were in white cloth coats like coachmen with lots of little capes and white beaver bonnets. They didn't look so bad, though rather as if they were in a Christmas card, and their dresses were white silk like pocket handkerchiefs under the long coats. And their shoes had real silver buckles. Our great Indian uncle gave them. H.O. went back just as the wagonette was starting and came out with a big brown paper parcel. We thought it was the secret surprise present Dora had been making, and indeed, when I asked her, she nodded. We little wrecked what it really was, or how our young brother was going to shove himself forward once again. He will do it. Nothing you say is of any lasting use. There were a great many people at the wedding, quite crowds, 
There was lots to eat and drink, and though it was all cold, it did not matter, because there were blazing fires in every fireplace in the house, and the place all decorated with holly and mistletoe and things. Everyone seemed to enjoy themselves very much, except Albert's uncle and his blushing bride, and they looked desperate. Everyone said how sweet she looked, but Oswald thought she looked as if she didn't like being married as much as she expected. She was not at all a blushing bride, really. Only the tip of her nose got pink, because it was rather cold in the church. But she is very jolly. Her reverend but nice brother read the marriage service. He reads better than anyone I know, but he is not a bit of a prig, really, when you come to know him. When the rash act was done, Albert's uncle and his bride went home in a carriage all by themselves. And then we had the lunch and drank the health of the bride in real champagne, though father said we kids must only have just a taste. I'm sure Oswald, for one, did not want any more. One taste was quite enough. Champagne is like soda water with medicine in it. The sherry we put sugar in once was much more decent. Then Miss Ashley, I mean Mrs. Albert's uncle, went away and took off her white dress and came back looking much warmer. Dora heard the housemaid say afterwards that the cook had stopped the bride on the stairs with a basin of hot soup that would take no denial because the bride, poor dear young thing, not a bite or sup had passed her lips that day. We understood then why she had looked so unhappy. But Albert's uncle had had a jolly good breakfast, fish and eggs and bacon and three goes of marmalade, so it was not hunger made him sad. Perhaps he was thinking what a lot of money it cost to be married and go to Rome. A little before the bride went to change, H.O. got up and reached his brown paper parcel from under the sideboard and sneaked out. We thought he might have let us see it given, whatever it was. And Dora said she had understood he meant to, but it was his secret. The bride went away looking quite comfy in a furry cloak, and Albert's uncle cheered up at the last and threw off the burden of his cares and made a joke. I forget what it was. It wasn't a very good one, but it showed he was trying to make the best of things. Then the bridal sufferers drove away with the luggage on a cart, heaps and heaps of it. And we all cheered and threw rice and slippers. Mrs. Ashley and some other old ladies cried. And then everyone said, what a pretty wedding, and began to go. And when our wagonette came round, we all began to get in. And suddenly father said, where's it, Joe? And we looked around. He was in absence. Fetch him along shop, some of you, father said. I don't want to keep the horses standing here in the cold all day. So Oswald and Dickie went to fetch him along. We thought he might have wandered back to what was left of the lunch, for he is young and he does not always know better. But he was not there, and Oswald did not even take a crystallized fruit in passing. He might easily have done this, and no one would have minded, so it would not have been wrong. But it would have been ungentlemanly. Dickie did not either. H.O. was not there. We went into the other rooms, even the one the old ladies were crying in, but of course we begged their pardons, and at last into the kitchen where the servants were smart with white bows 
and just sitting down to their dinners, and Dickie said, I say, Cookie Love, have you seen H.O.? Don't come here with your imperence, the cook said, but she was pleased with Dickie's unmeaning compliment all the same. I see him, said the housemaid. He was going with the butcher in the yard a bit since. He's got a brown paper parcel. Perhaps he got a lift home. So we went and old father, and about the white present in the parcel. I expect he was ashamed to give it after all, Oswald said, so we hooked off home with it. And we got into the wagonette. It wasn't a present, though, Dora said. It was a different kind of surprise, but it really is a secret. Her good father did not command her to betray her young brother. But when we got home, H.O. wasn't there. Mrs. Pettigrew hadn't seen him. And he was nowhere about. Father biked back to the cedars to see if he turned up. No. Then all the gentlemen turned out to look for him through the length and breadth of the land. He's too old to be stolen by gypsies, Alice said. And too ugly, said Dickie. Oh, don't, said both the girls. And now when he's lost, too. We had looked for a long time before Mrs. Pettigrew came in with the parcel she said the butcher had left. It was not addressed, but we knew it was H.O.'s, because of the label on the paper from the shop where Father gets his shirts. Father opened it at once. Inside the parcel we find H.O.'s boots and braces, his best hat and his chest protector, and Oswald felt as if we had found his skeleton. Any row with any of you? father asked, but there hadn't been any. Was he worried about anything, done anything wrong, was afraid to own up? We turned cold, for we knew what he meant. That parcel was so horribly like the lady's hat and gloves that she takes off on the seashore and lives with a letter saying it has come to this. No, 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 was all we said. He was perfectly jolly all morning. And then suddenly Dickie leaned on the table and one of H.O.'s boots toppled over. And there was something white inside. It was a letter. H.O. must have written it before we left home. It said, Dear Father and everyone, I am going to be a clown. When I am rich and revered, I will come back rolling. Your affectionate son, Horace Octavius Bastable. Rolling? Father said. He means rolling in money. Alice said. Oswald noticed that everyone around the table where H.O.'s boots were dignifiedly respected as they lay was a horrid pale color, like when the salt is thrown into snapdragons. Oh dear, Dora cried. That was it. He asked me to make him a clown's dress and keep it deeply secret. He said he wanted to surprise Aunt Margaret and Albert's uncle, and I didn't think it was wrong, said Dora. Screwing up her face, she then added, Oh dear, oh dear, oh. And with these concluding remarks, she began to howl. Father thumped her in the back in an absent yet kind way. But where is he gone? he said, not to anyone in particular. So the butcher, he said, H.O. asked him to take a parcel home and went back round the cedars. Here Dickie coughed and said, I didn't think he meant anything, but the day after Noel was talking about singing ballads in Rome and getting poets' lyres given him, 
H.O. did say if Noel had been really keen on the Roman lies and things, he could easily have been a stowaway and gone unknown. Stowaway, said my father, sitting down suddenly and hard. In Aunt Margaret's big dress basket, the one she let him hide in when we had had him sick there, he talked a lot about it after Noel had said that about the lies, and the Italians being so poetical, you know. You remember that day we had Duffy. My father is prompt and decisive in action. So is his eldest son. I'm off to the setters, he said. Do let me come, father, said the decisive son. You may want to send a message. So in a moment father went us on his bike, and Oswald on the step, a dangerous but delightful spot, and off to the setters. Have your teas, and don't any more of you get lost, and don't sit up if we're late. Father howled to them as we rushed away. How glad then the thoughtful Oswald was that he was the eldest. It was very cold in the dusk on the bicycle, but Oswald did not complain. At the setters, my father explained in a few manly but well-chosen words, and the apartment of the dear departed bride was searched. Because, said my father, if H.O. really was little ass enough to get into that basket, he must have turned out something to make room for himself. Sure enough, when they came to look, there was a great bundle rolled in a sheet under the bed. All lace things and petticoats and ribbons and dressing gowns and ladies' flummery. If you will put these things in something else, I'll catch the express to Dover and take it with me, father said to Mrs. Ashley. And while she packed the things, he explained to some of the crying old ladies who had been unable to leave off how sorry he was that a son of his, but you know the sort of thing. Oswald said, Father, I wish you'd let me come too. I won't be a bit of trouble. Perhaps it was partly because my father didn't want to let me walk home in the dark, and he didn't want to worry the Ashleys any more by asking them to send me home. He said this was why, but I hope it was his loving wish to have his prompt son so like him in his decisiveness with him. We went. It was an anxious journey. We knew how far from pleased the bride would be to find no dressing gowns and ribbons, but only H.O. crying and cross and dirty, as likely as not when she opened the basket at the hotel at Dover. Father smoked to pass the time, but Oswald had not as much as a peppermint or a bit of Spanish licorice to help him through the journey. Yet he bore up. When we got out of Dover, there were Mr. and Mrs. Albert's uncle on the platform, "'Hello,' said Albert's uncle. "'What's up? Nothing wrong at home, I hope.' "'We've only lost H.O.' said father. "'You don't happen to have him with you?' "'No, but you're joking,' said the bride. "'We've lost a dress basket.' "'Lost a dress basket?' The words struck us dumb, but my father recovered speech and explained. The bride was very glad when we said we had brought her ribbons and things. But we stood in anxious gloom, for now H.O. was indeed lost. The dress basket might be on its way to Liverpool, or rocking on the channel, and H.O. might never be found again. Oswald did not say these things. It is best to hold your jaw when you want to see a thing out, and are liable to be sent to bed as a strange hotel if anyone happens to remember you. Then suddenly the station master came in with a telegram. It said, 
A dress basket without label at Cannon Street detained for identification, suspicious sounds from inside, detained, inquirers, dynamite, machine suspected. He did not show us this till my father had told him about H.O., which it took some time for him to believe. And then he did and laughed and said he would wire them to get the dynamite machine to speak, and if so, to take it out and keep it till its father called for it. So back we went to London, with hearts a little lighter, but not gay, for we were a very long time from the last things we had had to eat, and Oswald was almost sorry he had not taken those crystallized fruit. It was quite late when we got to Cannon Street, and we went straight into the cloakroom, and there was the man in charge, a very jolly chap, sitting on a stool. And there was H.O., the guilty stowaway, dressed in a red and white clown's dress, <laughs> very dusty, and his face as dirty as I have ever seen it, sitting on someone else's tin box, with his feet on somebody else's portmanteau, eating bread and cheese and drinking ale out of a can. My father claimed him at once, and Oswald identified the basket. It was very large. There was a tray on the top with hat in it, and H.O. had this on top of him. We all went to bed in Cannon Street Hotel. My father said nothing to H.O. that night. When we were in bed, I tried to get H.O. to tell me all about it, but he was too sleepy and cross. It was the beer and the knocking about in the basket, I suppose. Next day, we went back to the moat house, where the raving anxiousness of the others had been called the night before by a telegram from Dover. My father said he would speak to H.O. in the evening. It is very horrid not to be spoken to at once and get it over, but H.O. certainly deserved something. It is hard to tell this tale, because so much of it happened all at once but at different places. But this is what H.O. said to us about it. He said, Don't bother, leave me alone. But we were all kind and gentle, and at last we got it out of him. What happened? He doesn't tell a story right from the beginning like Oswald, and some of the others do. But from his disjunctured words, the author has made the following narration. This is called editing, I believe. It was all Noel's fault, H.O. said. What did he want to go drawing about Rome for? And clowns as good as a beastly poet anyhow. You remember that day we made toffee? Well, I thought of it then. You didn't tell us. Yes, I did. I have told Dicky. He never said don't, or you'd better not, or gave me any good advice or anything. It's his fault as much as mine. Her father ought to speak to him tonight, the same as me. And Noel, too. We bore with him just then because we wanted to hear the story, and we made him go on. Well, so I thought if Noel's a cowardy custard, I'm not. And I wasn't afraid of being in the basket, though it was quite dark till I cut the air holes with my knife in the railway van. I think I cut the string off the label. It fell off afterwards, and I saw it through the hole. But of course I couldn't see anything. I thought they'd looked after their silly luggage better than that. It was all their fault I was lost. Tell us how you did it, H.O., darling, Dora said. Never mind about it being everybody else's fault. It's yours as much as anyone's, if you come to that, H.O. said. You made me the clown dress when I asked you. You never said a word about not, so there. Oh, H.O., you are unkind, Dora said. You know you said it was for a surprise for the bridal pair. So it would have been. If they'd found me at Rome and had popped up like I was meant to, like a jack-in-the-box, 
and said, Here we are again, in my clown's clothes, at them. But it's all spoiled, and Father's going to speak to me this evening. H.O. sniffed every time he stopped speaking. But we did not correct him then. We wanted to hear about everything. Why didn't you tell me straight away what you were going to do, Dickie asked. Because you jolly well have shut me up. You always do if I want to do anything you haven't thought of yourself. What did you take with you, H.O.? asked Alice in a hurry, for H.O. was now sniffing far beyond a whisper. Oh, I'd saved a lot of grub, only I forgot it at the last. It's under the chest of drawers in a room, and I had my knife, and I changed into the clown's dress in the cupboard at the Ashleys over my own things because they thought it would be cold. And then I emptied the rotten girl's clothes out and hid them, and the top-hatted tray. I just put it on a chair near, and I got into the basket, and I lifted the tray up over my head and sat down and fitted it down over me. It's got webbing bars, you know, across it, and none of you would ever have thought of it, let alone doing it. I should hope not, Dora said, but H.O. went on on hearing. I began to think perhaps I wished I hadn't directly they strapped up the basket. It was beastly hot and stuffy. I had to cut an air hole in the cart, and I cut my thumb. It was so bumpety, and they threw me about as if I was coals, and wrong way up as often as not, and the train was awful wobbly, and I felt so sick, and if it had the grub, I couldn't have eaten it. I had a bottle of water, and that was all right, till I dropped the cork, and I couldn't find it in the dark till the water got upset, and then I found the cork that minute. And when they dumped the basket onto the platform, I was so glad to sit still a minute without being jogged, I nearly went to sleep. And then I looked out, and the label was off and lying close by. And then someone gave the basket a kick, big brute, I'd like to kick him, and said, What's this here? And I dare say I did squeak, like a rabbit noise, you know. And then someone said, Sounds like livestock, don't it? No label. And he was standing on the label all the time. I saw the string sticking out under his nasty boot. And then they trundled me off somewhere, on a wheelbarrow it felt like, and dumped me down again in a dark place, and I couldn't see anything more. I wonder, said the thoughtful Oswald, what made them think you were a dynamite machine? Oh, that was awful, H.O. said. It was my watch. I wound it up just for something to do. You know the row it makes since it was broken? And I heard someone says, Just what's that? And then, sounds like an infernal machine. Don't go shoving me, Dora. It was him said it, not me. And then, if I was the inspector, I'd dump it down in the river, so I would. Anyway, let's shift it. But the other said, Let her alone. So I wasn't dumped anymore. And they fetched another man. And there was a heap of jaw. And I heard them say police, so I let them have it. What did you do? Oh, we just kicked a bat in the basket, and I heard them all start off, and I shouted, Hey, here, let me out, can't you? And did they? Yes, but not for ever so long. I had to drop them through the cracks of the basket, and when they opened it, there was quite a crowd, and they laughed ever so, and gave me bread and cheese, and said I was a plucky youngster. And I am, and I do wish Father wouldn't put things off so. He might just as well have spoken to me this morning, and I can't see you've done anything so awful, and it's all your faults for not looking after me, aren't I a little brother? 
and it's your duty to see I do what's right. You've told me so often enough. These last words checked the severe reprimand trembling on the hitherto patient Oswald's lips. And then H.O. began to cry, and Dora nursed him, though generally he is much too big for this and knows it. And he went to sleep on her lap, and said he didn't want any dinner. When it came to father speaking to H.O. that evening, it never came off, because H.O. was ill in bed, not sham, you know, but real, sent for the doctor ill. The doctor said it was fever from chill and excitement, but I think myself it was very likely the things he ate at lunch, and the shaking up, and then the bread and cheese, and the beer out of a can. He was ill a week. When he was better, not much was said. My father, who is the justest man in England, said the boy had been punished enough, and so he had, for he missed going to the pantomime and to shock-headed Peter at the Garrick Theatre, which is far and away the best play that ever was done, and quite different from any other acting I ever saw. They are exactly like real boys. I think they must have been reading about us, and he had to take a lot of the filthiest medicine they ever tasted. I wonder if father told the doctor to make it nasty on purpose. A woman would have directly, but gentlemen are not generally so sly. Anyway, you live and learn. None of us would now ever consent to be a stowaway. No matter who wanted us to, and I don't think H.O. is very likely to do it again. The only meant punishment he had was seeing the clown's dress burnt before his eyes by father. He had bought it all with his own saved-up money, red trimmings and all. Of course, when he got well, we soon taught him not to say again that it was any of our faults. As he owned himself, he is our little brother, and we are not going to stand that kind of cheek from him. End of chapter 1